0: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for January 25th, 2019. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Ahead on The Weekly, we examine America's drug industry and the intense lobbying effort by pharmaceutical companies here in Washington. It is a multi-million dollar industry to influence Congress, which includes a number of so-called ghost lobbying groups. Our guest is Chris Rowland. He covers the drug and healthcare beat for The Washington Post. We also look at the Affordable Care Act, how a divided Congress affects the future of the ACA, and the significant changes now underway in our country's overall healthcare system. Chris Rowland, let me begin with the lobbying arm of big pharma and the pharmaceutical industries. The
1: size and scope—just how big is it? Uh, the, the the pharmaceutical industry and uh, biopharma, as we now call it, because it's also a, you know a sprawling enterprise of biotech drugs, uh, small molecule pharmaceuticals. It's a gigantic industry. And they have power in Washington to match, uh, probably second only maybe to the defense industry in terms of lobbying clout uh, in Washington with the administration and with, in Capitol Hill. They spend uh, tens of millions uh, per individual company, as well as you know hundreds of millions collectively. Uh, the uh, Pharmaceutical Manufacturers and Research of America came out uh, just a, the last couple of days. Uh, with their numbers for 2018, and that you know that's the big lobbying arm for the industry, and they spent around 27, 28 million dollars in 2018 lobbying in Washington. And who are these individuals? Who are the lobbyists? Well, the lobbyists uh, are, take many forms. So the, you know, pharma has its own uh, roster of lobbyists that work directly for that that entity, the the trade group. Uh, then they contract out to a number of other firms. Uh, around town, up and down K Street, all around downtown. Uh, you know, maybe depending on the uh, group, depending on the uh, the company. You know, they could have a number of outside lobbying uh, firms. You know, five, six, even seven. Where they pay, you know, maybe that each one, maybe a hundred thousand, one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year, and what they're doing there is they're they're getting uh, some extra influence and access because individual lobbyists may have uh, particular influence with or connections to someone on the Hill. So let's go to the debate right now on putting the prices on
0: websites and on the prescriptions that you're about to buy. It seems rather simple, and yet it is
1: a big debate. Right, so uh, pharmaceutical pricing in general is uh, very opaque and very difficult to understand. And what even uh, the price pricing is so complex that there's not even uh, agreement on what price you should put on because there's the list price, which is kind of like the the retail price that's posted on a drug. But you know, in reality, throughout the healthcare system, no one actually pays that price. Uh, you're you know through you you may end up just paying like uh, through your copay. Uh, also what manufacturers pay and insurers pay for the drug is different than the list price. So there's, uh, it's a very complex and bewildering system and it makes it very easy for everyone to argue that, oh, well, you'd better off just not pricing anything, <laughs> not revealing any price. Um, if, if people saw the actual list prices of drugs, they'd be even more outraged. They're, and- they're really high. And a lot of times they're high because throughout the system there's rebates and discounts and special deals for all kinds of different insurance companies, you, you know, uh, individual drug companies. They own, they, uh, they negotiate their own prices with dr- drug manufacturers. So depending on what, you know, if it's a generic, for example. So there's uh, a, it's a bewilderingly complex environment. Uh, so... Um, but you know, any, probably any start at transparency would be a good idea. I was going to jump in. High and going higher, we saw the report this week
0: of insulin and the price hike over the last four to five years, which is a, a basic med- medicine
1: for so many Americans. Insulin generates a huge amount of outrage on Capitol Hill uh, and in doctors' offices and among patients around the country. Uh, there's, it, nobody can really understand. It's very difficult to understand why uh, a, a life-saving um, drug that keeps people alive that they need to take for their entire lives, and many times, uh, you know, a day or in a week, uh, it should be that expensive. It's been around for decades, and uh, it's what you have essentially is a lock on the market by two or three companies, and they've been able to. Uh, maintain their uh, market position and their pricing positions, uh, you know, defying political will, defying you know, economic pressures. Uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty complex story of why that's the case, uh, but um, essentially uh, they've improved their drugs uh, over the years, which gives them new patent life. And so that's why you're not seeing strong generic or biosimilar penetration against insulin. And that's one of the main the fundamental reasons the prices are so high. Then meanwhile, uh, what's happening is that uh, they, uh, they, they set the list, high, the list price exceedingly high and it keeps growing higher because that's how they pay the discounts to the insurers, the people who buy the drugs. Get the discount, and they get paid on a percentage based on the amount of the rebate. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy system. Congress wants to change it, but insulin is a great example of how that that rebate system for insurance companies and and PBMs is just doesn't work. So why why is it so complicated? Uh, it's complicated because healthcare is a complicated economy. Uh, there's a, a number of stakeholders. You've got patients. You've got doctors. You've got hospitals. You've got uh, the drug manufacturers, you got both brand and generics. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, chain pharmacies, l- local pharmacies. So there's so many players involved. And then it's also, uh, but it's also a highly regulated, uh, you know, crucial marketplace that uh, people need to survive. So it's, so the government has a lot of rules and regulations in that. And so what, what, what tends to evolve is uh a whole host of different ways of, of, of stakeholders who don't want, or, you know, companies, for-profit making companies that don't want their oxes gored, figure out all different kinds of ways to get around federal regulations. And that's why it's complicated.
0: This is your beat for the Washington Post. And my guess is no shortage of stories.
1: (laughs) It really is. I mean, you know, the, the, uh, the healthcare economy, I'm returning to it after being a political editor for a number of years. And, um, uh, the healthcare economy is endlessly interesting and fascinating. It's highly regulated, and and it is a vital, vital industry for uh, you know everyday people, and they rely on it. But it is is broken in many, many ways.
0: One of the reasons we invited you to join us on this podcast not only to talk about your expertise, but also the story that you wrote this past week, the headline in the Washington Post: "A Ghost in the Lobbying Machine," and specifically an organiza- organization called Citizens for American Ideas. And you're smiling. <laughs>
1: Well, it's kind of a it's a fun uh, sort of, uh, you know, mystery story, uh, K Street mystery story about what this entity is. Uh, So we we a colleague of mine, uh, Jeff Stein and I heard about this uh, from some sources on Capitol Hill who saw some flyers uh, going out, actually snail mail flyers to individual districts of Democrats uh, around the country. Uh, and then um, uh, so we started checking into it and it turns out that it is a uh, uh, what is a term of art on K Street called a ghost ship it's completely anonymous the, uh, the the you try to figure out who set up the website and you can't find that out because they used a service that allows them to maintain their an- anonymity uh, you uh, go to the IRS to find out if they registered as a, a 501c4 which is a, a uh, a nonprofit organization that's allowed to take, uh, you know, uh, limited funds and spend them on advocacy. Uh, and they haven't registered yet. Um, they have 60 days to do so. So it may be that, you know, they just started up, you know, recently. So, uh, and then, uh, but best of all, I, you know, I was looking at their address that they list on the mailers for the return address. And I went to the return address and I was looking at the lobby of this building and I'm like, it's not here. And then off to the side, there's a little, UPS store, a retail shop that has post office boxes. And I went in there and the UPS clerk behind the counter was like, I have no idea who those people are. They just probably have one of these boxes and that's it. So it was a total dead end, you know, literally a mail drop, uh, you know, cloaked in anonymity. Uh, so, you know, these things do pop up once in a while. Um, and, uh, clearly the, uh, backers of this thing don't want people to know what, what they're up to.
0: It has a good name though.
1: It sure does. I mean, so a lot of these groups uh definitely have these very positive sounding names. Um there's a number of front groups and I should say some of them are actually, you know, very good about disclosing who they are, uh where their money comes from and things like that. They've gotten better as a matter of fact. Uh but uh and this is an example of like, one of the sh- uh you know, more shadowy kind of intriguing ones. Uh and but it does follow the pattern of having a name like, you know, Citizens for American Ideas where It really masks that it's actually backed by, you know, industry and has an industry agenda. Um, You know, it's not saying it's like we're, you know, we're Pfizer or Novartis. You know, it's not it's not Novartis for American ideas. You know, I I shouldn't pick on Novartis because we don't know who this is or it's probably more of a consortium of 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 firms that have, uh, you know, hired a lobbying firm. Uh, to, to, to create this campaign and keep it um, anonymous.
0: Well, to that point, uh, the Alliance for Patient Access and Patients Rising, what are they?
1: So those are two other ones uh, that have, you know, risen to the attention of certainly like consumer advocates as, uh, as other examples of sort of these groups that um, are pejoratively called by their critics AstroTurf because they sort of masquerade as grassroots groups. They sound like just patients or they sound like citizens. But really what they are are these uh, front groups that do advocacy um, and it it gives it helps industry give the appearance of a more broad based support for their positions than they may actually have.
0: And we should point out there is nothing illegal about lobbying here in Washington, D.C.,
1: Absolutely not. You know, so uh, and especially this type of, uh, you know, this is just free speech, really. Uh, You know, um, you can set up a website and you can advocate for uh, positions and, uh, you know, put pressure and write letters and organize letter writing campaigns to Congress. And uh, and, you know, the the rules and the court rulings over the years have protected that Uh, if they were if they were electioneering, if they were advocating for a particular candidate. Uh, in an election, then they would fall under FEC rules, and then that then they would have to, uh, com, you know, come clean to who they are and where their money's coming from and things like that. Um, but uh, when you're just advocating around an issue like this or a bill or speaking out against bills, then that's considered a protected speech. And um, uh, and you know, so thus far there's has not been like heavy disclosure rules. They are, if they are a nonprofit, they do have to register with the IRS as a nonprofit and. Uh, and they have to, um, but they don't have to reveal their funding sources or their amounts.
0: But what about contributing to uh, candidates for office, members of the House, the Senate, uh, presidential candidates? They can do so as long as they disclose and follow the guidelines by the FEC, correct?
1: Uh, That's right. So you could have a case where um, a a group like this uh, could uh, be used as a conduit to uh, funnel unlimited cash, like into a super PAC or into another uh, 501C4 or something like that. Yes, they could do that. There has been a bill. So last year, uh, before she left office, uh, Claire McCaskill from Missouri, the Democrat in the Senate, um, uh, did sponsor a bill that would require the pharmaceutical industry to uh, disclose uh, when they give money to advocacy groups, patient advocacy groups, uh, front groups like this, uh, groups that lobby, groups that um, you know put out educational materials. Uh, And not, you know, uh, just trying to get some sunlight onto the situation to figure out where all this money is coming from and who is behind some of these messages. Um, You know, the bill went nowhere, uh, probably what was destined to fail, and now she's gone. So,
0: Well, walk us through the process, Chris Rowland, if you can explain with regard to the drug pricing debate. If you're a member of the House and Senate, you hear this idea. It seems to make sense. How does the pharmaceutical industry try to go after uh, those wavering members of
1: Congress? So, there are uh, a number of, of significant proposals aimed at curbing drug prices right now uh, in Congress. Uh, the biggest one, and the one that's driving the most debate, is uh, to allow Medicare to negotiate prices. Uh, a lot of Americans think that, um, and you poll it, and they all agree that this is probably a good idea. You know, Medicare is the biggest purchaser of drugs in the United States, uh, and yet it doesn't have the power to go out. And uh, demand a low price, and to uh, and, uh, you know get drug companies to compete against each other, and to uh, drive down prices. Um, there are you know a number of ones that you mentioned about transparency, about pricing transparency. Uh, there, um, but uh, so uh, the drug companies are uh, rallying. Uh, all their resources to try to fight off these uh, major initiatives that would disrupt their business model. Um, and their business model, particularly in Medicare Part D is very advantageous. That's why they supported Medicare Part D in 2003. Essentially it was it created uh, a whole new prescription benefit under Medicare so that seniors could would have money to buy their products. Uh, with very little rules and and unfettered without aggressive formularies and that kind of thing that would uh, tend to put uh, downward pressure on their price or freeze any out that are too high and things like that. So, uh, you know, they love, uh, you know, the the drug industry loves uh, Medicare Part D and they don't want it monkeyed with.
0: Then let's turn to the politics of this new Congress, with the Democrats now in control of the House, progressives now increasing their numbers among Democrats, and leading the voice on a number of these issues. What kind of challenge does that give this industry?
1: So, and that's why the industry is mobilizing very aggressively to try to, uh, you know, convince Congress, uh, you know, to go easy on price control type measures. But I think that um, with the Democrats taking over the House. Uh, the Democrats are going to be divided about Medicare for all. That's not probably going to fly uh, and that would be a national health care plan and uh, you know proposed by the f- uh, more further left uh, lawmakers, including Bernie Sanders, um, and championed by you know increasingly numbers of uh, people in the Democratic uh, primary, for example. but but the Medicare uh, uh, price negotiation is a much more popular notion among Democrats. It has broad, popular support. And I think that you uh, there's a pretty strong likelihood that that uh, could pass the House. Uh, You know, I think that the firewall for the drug industry is in the Senate. The Republican controlled Senate is unlikely, uh, as the betting goes now, uh, to uh, sign on to a Medicare drug negotiating bill. Uh, but the wild card, of course, is in the White House. Donald Trump supports he has said he supports Medicare negotiation. He supports a whole raft of ideas about uh, curbing the industry's prices. And so a lot of people are wondering, like, if the president really got behind some bill somehow that passed the Democratic House. And he saw it as crucial to his populist chances for reelection uh, that there and especially with a number of senators facing tough you know, reelection Republican senators facing re-election in 2020, that they that there could be some danger for the pharmaceutical industry and that their firewall in the Senate may not be that strong. Uh, the, the crucial person with their hand on the throttle in the Senate is um, Chuck Grassley, uh, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. And uh, he has said he's not in favor of uh, Medicare negotiating, but he is in favor of a number of other uh, smaller initiatives about transparency and about, uh, you know, um, going after companies that uh, are gouging consumers, he's, he's pretty pro-consumer when it comes to price gouging. Um, uh, you know, practices that hurt consumers, uh, PBMs. Uh, and I've used that uh, again in the second time now. Should I should explain. A Pharmaceutical benefit manager is as is an, uh, an insurance company that um, does drug coverage.
0: What about the private sector? Whether it's CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid. Walmart, can they negotiate better prices with the, uh, these companies, these providers?
1: Uh, yes, and uh, they should be. Uh, that's, it's, it's, a, it's a source of, of, of tension uh, in, the econ- in the drug economy and also politically that these companies don't do more uh, to negotiate lower prices. Um, and this leads to a whole other question in healthcare, which is um, consolidation and uh, concentration of market power. Uh, CVS is actually a really good example So CVS in 2006, 2007 2008 somewhere around that time frame uh, bought Caremark, which is uh, one of the nation's biggest uh, PBMs, which I mentioned is a pharmaceutical benefit manager. So then you so now you had the the pharmacy chain uh, uh, and in this under the same umbrella with the pharmacy benefit manager uh, and their job is to uh, you know, you would hope that they would be hope driving down costs and prices. The problem is, is that the the PBM model uh, has become uh, somewhat broken, or and so, many would argue hopelessly broken, because its whole uh, a large portion of its revenues. These PBMs, Caremark's one, Optim's another. They um, they get rebates, very large rebates from the drug manufacturers, uh, and the drug manufacturers are interested in being on the formulary. So the formulary is a list of drugs that the PBM will cover. I apologize, this gets a little weedy. uh, No, explain. But but it's really at the heart of what the problem is on drug pricing uh, in the view of many. And so these these companies are competing to get on, to, to be the favored status on the PBM formulary. And so to do that, they basically give what is a discount or a rebate. And some people see it as a kickback to get market share. And so the PBMs are actually profiting from high prices. And that's where you get this conflict of interest that is preventing downward pressure from a big entity like CVS on drug prices.
0: Let me take that one step further because you've written extensively about CVS. And for many people across the country, it's the store in their neighborhood that they go to get a prescription filled and uh, buy household goods and other medical supplies and other necessities. But it really is changing the healthcare industry moving ahead to your earlier point.
1: Yeah, it really is. So, and, uh, you know, who's really feeling the squeeze uh, from CVS growth uh, is a community pharmacists. I, I get calls, I just got a call yesterday from some uh, com- uh, a uh, couple of operators of a community pharmacist in Easton, Maryland, who just called me out of the blue to say, you know, CVS is is really squeezing us, and they they point the finger at other chains too. But CVS really gets the sh- the lion's share of the blame, and part of it's because of their market share and their concentration of power with all their insurance interests. Um, and so, what's happening is that uh, you know as the as the market power and of their ability to flex their muscle in the market grows, the ability of an independent pharmacy uh, uh, to you know compete is getting really really uh, uh, uh compromised. So they can't compete on price, they can't compete the prices that they are reimbursed at for various drugs, generic drugs, they have it's completely they have no idea who's setting the prices or why it's happening. If they have Caremark and is, and Caremark is this is the CVS PBM is reimbursing them, they ha- and rightfully so. I feel like it's a fair question. They're suspicious that you know, Caremark is not giving them a great deal uh, and because they are going to favor the CVS chain stores. I and mean, I think that that's probably a fair question, a fair criticism. And I suspect you'll hear more and more of that. Let's turn, if we
0: can, to the larger issue, the debate over the Affordable Care Act signed into law by President Barack Obama. Republicans have tried to repeal and replace it. What's its future? What's the debate going
1: to look like in this new Congress? Well, I think uh, notwithstanding multiple failures by the Republican Congress to repeal and uh, replace the ACA, the Republican administration has done a, a pretty good job uh, in, of the, in their goal of trying to weaken it. Uh, the ACA, uh, it definitely um, is not as strong as it was. Uh, the, you know, the lack of the individual mandate, which was removed uh, by Congress uh, in the tax bill, Makes it so now people don't have to go out and buy insurance, which uh, kind of weakens the model of the ACA because then you don't have uh, healthy young people who should be signing up, signing up and paying into the system. You know, you're still going to. So you're going to end up with an insurance systems that have more sick people. And, you know, that's a that's a fundamentally bad model for an insurance uh, um, uh, plan because it's going to fail ultimately. So. um so I think that the you know, the e- ACA has been eroded. Uh, and I think that administratively, the the uh, you know, administration has done a fair amount of damage. Uh, but now you've got with the Democrats holding the House, uh, you're not going to see any major efforts to repeal it anymore. I think those are over. So I think that the you know, we're now in a place where the ACA has been wounded, eroded, but now it still exists. And that's going to be the status quo for some time.
0: Let me go back to your piece, which, by the way, is available online at WashingtonPost.com. Bottom line: What do you think will happen? Will drug companies be forced to list their prices, or will the industry succeed in pushing this back by the House and the Senate?
1: I think you will see uh, the drug industry uh, being forced to uh, produce some more transparent measures, uh, whether it's uh, you know the kind of listing that you're talking about, or whether it's something different, I think remains to be seen. It may be something that is kind of difficult to interpret. You know, recently hospitals were required to post their prices and uh, there's been a fair amount of reporting that it's incomprehensible and for a layman to try to figure it out is nearly impossible. Uh, So I wouldn't be surprised if whatever happens in terms of transparency for drug pricing is ultimately somewhat similar. Um, you, You know, it'll be chemical names and milligrams this and, you know, dosage that, and it's going to be hard to figure out. Um, uh, I do think that, uh, the, the, there, it does seem to be a significant amount of will in Congress, bipartisan will to, um, do something about the PBM rebate thing that I was talking about, you know, that, that those practices are seen as, uh, very damaging to the healthcare economy. And, uh, so they're, you know, there could be something happening. I'm definitely not in the prediction business. And, you know, I think in politics these days, I think anybody who is in the prediction business is, you know, maybe going to be making a mistake. But so I think that if there is movement, it could be around the the PBMs and the insurance, the relationship between insurance and drug uh, drug companies may be where uh, the rubber meets the road. And are there other
0: groups, citizen groups or other organizations that are pushing back against big pharma? Uh,
1: Yeah, so there's... There are a number of traditional, long-time consumer advocacy groups in Washington that do uh, a fair amount of, uh, of watchdogging of the drug industry. Um, they put out, you know, so Public Citizen obviously is like one of the, you know, um, Ralph Nader's organization uh, is, you know, one of the best known. Uh, Consumers Union also does uh, some stuff around um, drugs and healthcare. care. Uh, there is a new upstart. Uh, group that uh, has emerged on the scene in the last year or so, and that's Patients for Affordable Drugs. Uh, again, another name, seeming to adopt the uh, you know the naming strategies of the industry. Uh, and uh, I, it's diff- I think in some ways, I mean, they are they are uh, they are funded by a uh, Texas billionaire who uh, funneled money through his foundation to that group. And um, it's not that there. The difference between them is that their motivation is. Uh, they're trying to right what they see as wrongs in the marketplace, as opposed to protecting profits.
0: Chris Rowland, a native of New York City, a graduate of the University of Arizona, and now working here in
1: Washington, D.C. Why is this your area of expertise? How did you land with this beat? So I uh, started covering the healthcare industry when I was uh, still worked at the Boston Globe, uh, well before I came to the Post just recently. And uh, I covered it in Boston. I covered the big providers up in Boston, um, the, all the Harvard teaching hospitals. I covered the pharmaceutical industry, biotech, devices. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an endlessly fascinating and interesting uh, segment of our economy. It accounts for about a fifth of the U.S. economy as healthcare. care. Uh, it um, it's, uh, it's a very dysfunctional economy that uh, is wide open for watchdog reporting, which I really like. And it's uh, a fascinating area of uh, so I've and I've covered uh, presidential campaigns for the last two cycles uh, I was a political editor for a long time and now to get back into this rich and meaty beat is really fun
0: And it sounds even more complicated than ever
1: <laughs> It is it's definitely there's some things that are the same uh, But there's a lot of things that are changing and different uh, the the debates seem to be more intense if and if nothing else Chris Roland thank
0: you very much for stopping by the C-SPAN studios
1: Thanks a lot for having me. I really enjoyed it. And again,
0: his work available at WashingtonPost.com. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly, this podcast available on the free C-SPAN radio app, online anytime at cspan.org. Thanks for listening.